The Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Well, the current COVID crisis has caused many people to reevaluate what really matters in their lives. And that's been happening for churches as well. Uh, For churches who were all about numbers and doing anything and everything they could to get as many people in the seats as possible, this new reality has been something of a wake-up call. Uh, Christ's primary mission for us is not to try and reach some attendance goal or baptismal goal. God's calling on His churches is for us to be faithful to the commands that He has given us. Our mission is to preach the truth, to grow as disciples, to fulfill our various callings, and to be intentional and active witness. And as we trust our Savior and as we obey His Word, we know that He will bless us. Christ always blesses obedience. Christ always blesses faithfulness. But He gets to decide what those blessings look like. He gets to determine the degree of those blessings. He gets to determine when and how they come. But they will come. That said, the desire to see our church or any church grow numerically is not a bad desire. Indeed, as we're being faithful to Jesus, I think it's good and right that we should be regularly praying for Christ to bring more people among us, for us to see more and more people baptized, more and more souls saved. In other words, our desire is genuine church growth, which means the lost being saved and discipled and then sent out as witnesses to others. Uh, One of the hymns we sing often says, We long to see thy churches full, that all thy chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. Of course, in our day, there have been all sorts of techniques and programs and sometimes just plain gimmicks that churches use to try and and grow, and COVID has stripped a lot of that away, and that may be a good thing. Uh, This has been a season where churches have had to go back to the absolute basics. What is truly essential? What are the non-negotiables of what a church ought to do? When all the programs and the parties and the extras are taken away, what should be left is the faithful gathering of God's people around His Word for worship and discipleship. Because that's where the power is. That's where the glory is. That's what Christ has promised to use to build his church. Now we're talking about outreach. We're talking about evangelism. 
Before we focus on our verses this morning, I want to remind us of two essential ingredients to evangelism. Two things that cannot be put to the side. Two non-negotiables. Two things that should always be front and center as we seek to reach the world for Christ. The first has to be the Word of God. Everywhere Jesus went, he preached. Everywhere Jesus went, he taught. Matthew summed up Jesus' ministry this way. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And Mark and Luke emphasize Jesus' teaching as well. Mark 1.39, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, casting out demons. And we saw it in Luke 4, verse 44. He was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The Gospel of John records several lengthy discourses of Jesus that give us a record of the kind of teaching that Jesus was doing. Reading through the Gospels, we simply cannot miss that Jesus reached people by preaching and teaching the Word of God, by bringing truth. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave to his church the Great Commission. And the Great Commission tells us that the church of Christ is to continue preaching and teaching. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. What does that include? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the commission is to make disciples. How do you do that? Through teaching, through truth being communicated. In fact, while Jesus was working with his disciples before his death, he gave them a a trial run where he sent them out on a sort of practice missionary journey. And Luke 9 verse 6 says, They departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel. So once Jesus ascended into heaven, by God's grace and by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the apostles began to reach people the same way Jesus did. Through a message. Through good news. Acts 5.42, speaking of the apostles, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So what did evangelism look like in the early church? It was teaching and then teaching and then more teaching. The early church grew through teaching. This is God's appointed way of saving souls and then making them holy. We've said it a thousand times before. We need to keep saying it a thousand times. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to create the people of God. Remember Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones? Ezekiel, how can these bones live? God, you know. Smart answer by Ezekiel. Ezekiel preaches. And as he preaches, suddenly flesh and blood return 
and dead men walk. This is the picture of real evangelism. It is through preaching and teaching that spiritual rebirth takes place. And then second, and we see it even in some of those verses I just referenced, there's always that essential ingredient of love. What is evangelism? It is speaking the truth in love. Not to win a fight. Not to to say, aha, I scored points. It's you care about the souls of the people you're talking to. You love them. And so you're speaking the truth to them. And you're being patient with them. And you're pleading with them. And you're reasoning with them. You're loving them. We see that Jesus didn't just preach, but he showed his love through the healings that he did, the casting out of demons, and the apostles followed that same pattern. The miraculous works of Jesus and his apostles served a specific purpose. Part of that purpose was to show that God's seal was upon Christ and this message. The miracles helped authenticate the gospel. But they also showed that these were men who loved the people they were trying to reach. They were not caught up in a movement. They were not caught up in some agenda where they were just manipulating or using the people that they encountered. The people they were meeting were the agenda. They wanted to see more and more people come to know and love Jesus. They wanted to see more and more people come and give worship to the true God. So as we think about evangelism, as we think about our role as a missionary Baptist church, we must always keep these things in front of us, speaking the truth in love. We think about how Jesus received the little children We think about how he used tough love with the Pharisees. We think about how he was willing to be accounted among the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He loved. The early church followed Jesus' example. Acts 2.45 says that Christians were even selling their possessions in order to give money to those among them that needed it most. The the church of Christ is to be a people full of love for God, overflowing into an abundance of love for one another, which then overflows into an abundance of love for the lost. We love God. God says, if you love me, you're going to love my children. So we love his children. And God says, also, there's all those created in my image. Go love them as well. Listen to church historian Bruce Shelley talk about the rapid growth of Christianity in the first centuries. The practical expression of Christian love was probably among the most powerful causes of Christian success. Tertullian tells us that the pagans remarked, see how these Christians love one another. And the pagans' words were not irony. He meant them. These early Christians' love found expression in the care of the poor and of widows and orphans in visits to brethren in prisons or to those condemned to a living death in the mines and in acts of compassion during a famine or an earthquake or war. One expression of Christian love had a particularly far-reaching effect. 
It was the church that often provided burial services for poor brethren. Christians felt that to deprive a person of honorable burial was a terrible thing. And like Tantius, the North African scholar wrote, we will not allow the image and creation of God to be thrown out to the wild beasts and the birds as their prey. It must be given back to the earth from which it was taken. The Emperor Julian, who was fiercely anti-Christian and was trying to put new life into the worship of the Roman gods, said that the Christian faith has been especially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. These early Christians looked around and they said, let's see where the needs are. Where are the needs? What, What can we do to show love? To the people around us. And that was the need. The government wasn't providing a way for them to bury their dead. Christians said, we'll give. A large part of this sermon has been introduction, but I wanted to make sure that what I'm giving you is understood in the proper context. Truth, love, truth, love. These are the primary ingredients of real evangelism. So now... As we're studying Luke's gospel, as we're observing the ministry of Christ, we're watching the way that he seeks to reach people. And it's a question we should be regularly asking as we study this book. How did Jesus seek to reach the people of his day with God's truth? One day, a long time from now, when we leave the gospel of Luke and get to part two, the book of Acts... We'll be asking the same question, except we'll be saying, how did Jesus' followers seek to reach the people of his day? We might even ask, is there a New Testament pattern concerning how people are to be reached with the gospel and brought into the fold of God's people? Is there a pattern in the way that Jesus and his followers did evangelism? And our passage this morning is a great help to this. It's one we've looked at many times before, even when we weren't studying the Gospel of Luke, because I think it's just an important passage. Jesus is speaking to the crowd of people. He's been healing many of them. And he's now drawing a contrast between his ministry and the ministry of John the Baptist who came before him. So look at what Jesus says, Luke chapter 7, verse 31. Luke chapter 7, verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread. And drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So in this passage, Jesus is talking about that present generation of people who had been blessed first by God sending John the Baptist to them, and now Jesus himself being in their presence. 
both John the Baptist and Jesus preached the same truth in love. They preached, repent, turn away from your sins, trust God. But these two men had two very different styles of ministry. You see, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. John the Baptist had taken a vow to never drink wine or anything else that comes from grapes. John's words imply that his ministry did not include being in people's homes. John lived out in the wilderness. He wore a garment of camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. And people had to come to him to hear him preach. Like Jesus did when he went out to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John was a man who frankly was strange. Like most of the prophets of the Old Testament. He was somewhat aloof. Right? He did not fit in well among normal society. And how did people respond to him? Verse 33 tells us. They thought he had a demon. Especially the religious leaders. Especially the establishment. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers. Because he was the kind of man who did not hang out at people's houses. Because he lived differently than the average people. They accused John the Baptist of having a demon. Now here comes Jesus. And his style of ministry is the exact opposite. He's not aloof at all. He's not living out in the wilderness. He's not calling people to to come out to him. He's going to them. He and his disciples spend day after day traveling to different villages, different synagogues, coming to people's houses, spending time in their communities. Here's a man who spent time in and among people, breaking bread with them. The religious leaders noticed the difference between Jesus' approach to evangelism and John's approach. Because we saw it back in Luke chapter 5, verse 33. When they said, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So so here's Jesus, and he's preaching and teaching the same gospel as John the Baptist. He has both truth and love, just like John, but he's not separate from the people the way John was. And how do they respond? They call Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. In other words, Jesus is teaching in these verses... That people can always come up with reasons not to believe. People can always come up with their reasons, their excuses not to repent or heed the word of God. See, Jesus uses this saying that would have been very familiar to them. A saying that they would have heard from kids out in the marketplace. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We, we thought playing the flute would get you to jump in with us. You'd be happy with us. But, but that didn't work. So we sang a dirge. But you didn't weep either. 
In other words, we, we tried happy, but you wouldn't do happy. We tried sad, but you wouldn't do sad. You refused to be a part. You see the point. John comes with one style of ministry. Jesus came with another style of ministry. Each time, they were rejected. Why? Because it wasn't the style that mattered. We, we could even say that some churches are flute churches. A bit more jovial, a bit more upbeat. <laughs> Other churches we might describe as dirge churches. They're, they take the more sober and, and reverent approach. Neither will have any gracious saving impact unless God works to change the heart. As long as the heart is hard, it just doesn't matter. And Jesus is especially calling out the religious leaders of his day. And he says, one kind of person came to you and you said, I wish he was more like this. So Jesus comes more like this and they say, we wish he was more like that. They simply will not be pleased and they will not believe. Jesus says wisdom is justified by her children, all her children. (laughs) Meaning both John's method and Jesus' method had produced children of wisdom. There were people who were truly converted and repented and believed the gospel under both ministries. There were people who were given eyes to see and ears to hear. So John's ministry became justified, meaning it was vindicated by the people that God saved through him. And Jesus' ministry was justified, vindicated by the people that were saved through him. Both styles were fine because it was the substance that mattered. So these verses speak of two ways of doing evangelism. The the model of John the Baptist who was aloof and did not eat and drink. The model of Jesus who was eating and drinking with the people. Which model are we to follow? I think the biblical answer is pretty clear. And we've seen it before. Because over and over again in the pages of the New Testament... We are given both the example of evangelism through biblical hospitality and the commands of biblical hospitality. And this is the peril of preaching verse by verse through the Bible that I'm preaching on hospitality in the middle of a pandemic. But here it is. And it may look different in these days. We may have to be creative. But it's still a word we need to hear. Mount Hermon, the church of Jesus Christ at its beginning and throughout the centuries has reached people with the gospel over plates of food and cups of drink. People spending time together and sharing a meal, talking about life and God and important things has been one of the most consistent means that God has used to save souls and build up his church. In his book, Meals with Jesus, Tim Chester makes some observations about the way that Jesus ministered while he was on earth. First, three times in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus said, the Son of Man came, or the Son of Man has come. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came. Why? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
In Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So both of those statements, those huge statements, are about the purpose of why Jesus came. To ransom, to save. The third Son of Man statement is about how he did this. Luke 7.34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. So the the first two statements are about why Jesus came. But this this third statement is about how he came or how he lived on this earth. What his ministry looked like. Eating and drinking. The, The title Son of Man comes from the book of Daniel. There we see that. The Son of Man, when He comes, will clearly be a human being. He's a son of Adam, a son of man. But we also learn from Daniel that this man is going to receive all authority and all power from God. That the Son of Man is going to be the Messiah. And that when the Messiah comes, He will come to separate the righteous from the wicked. And He will bring the salvation of God on His children and also bring the judgment of God on the wicked. We already saw in recent weeks that John the Baptist was expecting Jesus to come in judgment against Pilate and Herod and the Roman emperor and get him out of prison. And instead, what's Jesus doing? He's eating and drinking. Just going from town to town, having dinner parties with people. The Jews expected Jesus to come with a host of angels, an angel army to bring the world to its proper end and What are you doing, Jesus? Another observation is that Jesus didn't just eat and drink in order to survive, the way we all do. It appears to have been an important way, an important part of the way that he did ministry. Look at verse 34 again. What do they say about him? The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So you hear the accusation. They're calling Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. A glutton, one who eats too much. A drunkard, one who drinks too much. Why were they accusing Jesus of these things? Well, he wasn't actually a glutton. And he wasn't actually a drunkard. But it appears that Jesus did believe in having long meals. He did believe in spending a lot of time around table with other people. Tim Chester says, Jesus did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. And notice the kinds of people he was spending time with. He's spending this time with tax collectors and sinners. These were the people considered most undeserving of God's love, most undeserving of any relationship with the Messiah. Surely if the Messiah is going to be eating and drinking, it's going to be with the leaders of the Sanhedrin. Or surely it's going to be in the palaces of Rome. Or surely it's going to be in in, in Pilate's tower. No, he is eating and drinking and giving the most of his time and energy to the outcasts of society. Those hated by the normal people. They called Jesus a friend of the tax collectors and the sinners. Why do they call Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners? 
Because one of the ways that you show friendship with someone is you break bread with them. I don't know if you remember back in our study of Genesis that the Egyptians refused to sit at the same table with the Israelites. They would not break bread at the same table with the Israelites. Why? Because that would show that the Israelites weren't their slaves. That would show that the Israelites were were of the same level with them. There was a sense of, of friendship, camaraderie that comes with sitting at the same table breaking bread. The Egyptians wouldn't do it. And the Pharisees wouldn't do it with these tax collectors and sinners. But here's Jesus breaking bread with them. Yes, Jesus taught large crowds on hillsides and by the sea. Jesus taught in synagogues. Jesus is going to teach in the courts of the temple. But just like his followers in the book of Acts, Jesus loved to break bread with people. I'll give you this list just once more. I've given it to you before. Luke 5. Jesus eats, and te- Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at the house of Levi. Luke 7. Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Luke 10, Jesus is eating in the home of Mary and Martha. Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and other teachers of the law while he's at a meal. Luke 14, Jesus urges people to invite the poor and the needy to their dinner tables while he himself is at a meal. Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to a meal at Zacchaeus' house. In Luke 22, Jesus and his disciples participate in the Lord's Supper, which was a meal. In Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus Christ has a meal with two of his followers in Emmaus. And then later in Luke 24, we find him eating breakfast with his disciples. Robert Karras has said in Luke's gospel, Jesus is always either going to a meal at a meal or coming from a meal. Which isn't that how we live anyway? just part of our lives the son of man came eating and drinking it was through his having meals with people that he showed love to them that he found opportunity to talk to them in the midst of their busy lives it was also how he showed that he wasn't too good for them isn't it a way that somebody says to you that you matter and you're important when they're willing to give up some time to go just spend time eating with you So these were a great context in which truth and love were shared. We're so prone to say evangelism is hard. I don't know if I have the courage to do it. I don't know if I have the words to say. I just don't know how to be a good witness to people. I'm afraid to share the gospel. Friend, do you know how to fix a sandwich? Do you know how to just sit at a table and just talk about your life? Because if you're a Christian, you can't talk about your life and not eventually get to Jesus. You can't talk about your life and say, hey, let me just tell you what happened to me. You don't have to go into a a dissertation on justification by faith alone. Just tell your story and point them to Jesus. Now, I mentioned we have two examples of ministry in our passage, that of John the Baptist and that of Jesus. One of the reasons that I emphasize that we should follow the pattern of Jesus is that that's the pattern handed down to the apostles in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 2, for example, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Twice in that list. The only thing mentioned twice is they were breaking bread together. They were breaking bread together. That certainly included the Lord's Supper, but remember the Lord's Supper was more than that. The Lord's Supper was truly a supper. It was a meal. It was communion time where Christians commune together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to talk, to share, to encourage, and to remember the cross together. And it was through those meals That God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Remember when Paul gave instructions to the Corinthians about carrying their worship with decency and order. And he said that everything that was to be done in the worship service was to be done so that if any unbelievers came among them, they would know that God was with them and fall on their faces and worship. You see, Paul assumed that when the Christians were gathering, unbelievers would be among them. So breaking bread among the Christians wasn't just something Christians were doing in their little holy huddles. It was, hey, let's break bread together and let's, let's invite our lost friends. Let's invite our lost neighbors. So what's the application? Well, in non-COVID times... Right? We would go one way here. We would talk about not being afraid to open up your home and to bring people around your table and, and all of those kinds of things. In our current situation, what I would say is don't sweep this command away. Figure out what you're comfortable with. Figure out what the people that you love and that you're trying to reach are comfortable with and find ways to overcome obstacles to still show biblical hospitality. This may be a good lunchtime conversation for you and your family, right? What can we do to still make something like that table conversation happen? I mean, people have made a lot of fun of, of folks, you know, doing Zoom meals, but maybe that's what it needs to be, right? The, hey, let's, let's you eat a sandwich at your house, I'll eat a sandwich at my house, and we'll Zoom at the same time and, and still talk like we're at the table. Maybe, right? You can use technology for all kinds of things. But what can this look like? What should this look like? Be creative. Let's think through how can we practice biblical hospitality, sharing meals with people. And then finally, let's just remember that none of this matters without the gospel message. There's no use in trying to reach people if we don't have something worth sharing. But we have a gospel, the true gospel, the glorious gospel. That a holy God created people made in his image. And though they fell and though we have sinned and though we are deserving of the judgment of God in hell. He sent his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And those of us who have come to know Christ have come to know the forgiveness of our sins. And the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And union with a body of people who love us. And the belief that one day we're going to make it safely through the day of judgment. And come to heaven itself and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean this is our hope. We have a message worth sharing. Let's not let COVID keep us from sharing. 
We, we don't get to put a pause on the Great Commission. We don't get to say, oh, Lord, give us a year and a half hiatus or however long it might be. We just have to be flexible. We have to be creative. But let's make sure we're being faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing